We'd like for you to turn today to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Today's message is the third in a series of messages dealing with the whole counsel of God. And the title of the message today is The Chief End of Man. Or, in other words, what is the chief reason for our existence? What's the main thing which we are to be living for? If someone should come to you today and they should ask the question, What are you living for? What would you reply? What would you reply? Would it be like one old farmer that I talked to one time who said, Well, the only reason I'm living, I guess, is just to keep these ten old cows milked day and night. Is that the chief end of your existence? All of us may have different things in which that we enjoy doing, but the Scriptures do declare that there is one chief end of our existence. And so we want to try to deal with that subject today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, the apostle states, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever activity that we participate in, in the physical, in the mental realm, the end design of that activity is to glorify and give honor unto God as our Creator. So if we ask the question, what is the chief end for which man is to exist, then we reply in this fashion as found in the words of what is known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the chief reason why God has created you and me is to glorify him and to find happiness or enjoyment in our glorifying of God. And so we want to deal with that question this morning to try to show the first part of the answer that man's chief end is to glorify his God. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 11 states to us, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracle of God. If any man minister... Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, Peter has stated essentially what Paul has given us in 1 Corinthians, that whatever we do, whether we're ministering for God, whether we're speaking as a representative of God, the end design should be not our praise or the praise of our hearers, but it should be in order that God's name might be glorified, because he is worthy of all praise and dominion. In the Old Testament book of First Chronicles, chapter 16 and verse 29, the statement is given there, which you don't have to take time to turn there, but listen as this statement is taken from that text. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. And throughout all the pages of the Bible, we find this reoccurring theme. God is to be glorified in whatever we do, whether it's in spiritual activities, whether it's in physical and material activities. 
God is to be given the glory that is due unto his name. Man's chief end of his existence is to glorify his God. Now then, because the latter part of the answer to the question is, he must not only glorify his God and enjoy him to, uh, forever, is that if man is not glorifying his God, he cannot enjoy his God. And if he cannot enjoy his God, he will never find the inner peace for which God has created him. God has created you and uh, me for the purpose of happiness. And yet we cannot find that happiness apart from glorifying him. And men today are trying to find happiness in all realms of the creation apart from their enjoyment of God and his moral character. And because they're not seeking their happiness in God, they cannot find peace and contentment in the affairs of life. So the basic reason for our existence is God has so created us as a human being that he's put a governor upon us like he does, like we would upon an internal combustion motor. And that motor can run no faster than what that governor will allow. And man can find no more happiness than what he can find in the knowledge of his God and glorifying him, for he alone is worthy. If there is to be a chief end for our existence, then it also follows that there must be an inferior or a secondary end. And what is that? Does the Bible tell us what that is? Yes, we believe it does. The inferior end for which that we are to live is to wisely, soberly, and mercifully govern over, use, and dispose of other creatures in the earth, sea, air, and over which God has given us the dominion. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, they were put there to glorify God, for they came forth from him and were the works of his handiwork. But he also gave man dominion over the rest of the creation. Let's go back there, if you would, and you have your Bibles. Turn back there to Genesis chapter 1 and verse uh, 26. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said un God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that God moveth upon the earth. When God created man now, he created him for the chief reason of acknowledging the glory of God. But the secondary reason, which is to be in subjection to that, is that man is to rule over and exercise dominion over the rest of God's creation in the realm of plants, in the realm of minerals, in the realm of animals. Man is to be, if we might use the term guardedly, the God of the material creation. He is the boss. He's the king. He's to use all the other elements 
in the creation and to use them wisely for the purposes which God has created them. God has a purpose for all the plants, all the minerals, and all the animals which exist in his material universe. And man is not to take advantage of them selfishly. He is to use them and dispose of them and to govern over them for the benefit of man. But he's not to use them in a selfish pattern in which that may deplete the resources in which God has placed him as a steward over. Go with me to the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 8 and beginning in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Now here's the glory of God. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou hast visited him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over all the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. David said, when I look upon the earth and I see all of your majesty, and I give you all of the glory for creating all of this, he said, I ask myself a question. Who am I, a man, that you have placed honor and dignity upon me, in that you have given man, your creatures, dominion over all the other realms of the world in which that you have so graciously created? So God created man to glorify God, and secondarily, to govern over the world and to live in the world in which that he finds himself in. Then in light of this, what should be thought of those individuals who wholly concentrate entirely upon inferior things and forget and neglect the principal reason for their existence? What should we think of people who go through their life and never give idea or thought that they are to give glory to God, but are totally consumed with finding happiness and pleasure from the things of the creation. Things of the creation in and of themselves are not wrong. Man was given dominion over them to use them properly under the knowledge of God. But what should we think of a human being who then makes the secondary thing of his creation the most important thing? What should we think of a person who gets more pleasure from the creation than he does out of God? And that's essentially what has happened to the human race. First, we answer from the Scriptures that these individuals reveal what the very essence of sin is as defined in the Bible. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned and come short of what? Of the glory of God. What is sin? 
It's simply living with anything in the life in which that you do that your eye is not on giving the glory unto God. When you come forth from your mother's womb, if you do not, when you reach the account, the age of mental faculty and reason, if you do not acknowledge that it was more than just a natural process of a man and woman forming you, then you are sinning. You're not giving God the glory for your actual earthly existence. And if you're plowing the field out here and you're not seeing that it is God which created that dirt, it's God which is working in and through you, then you've made yourself more important than God himself and you're robbing God of his glory. So that a person, when they make the inferior end of their life the most important thing in life, then they have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. They got tired of saying, we don't want to have to acknowledge you as being worthy of honor and glory. We'll just take matters into our own hands. We can exercise dominion now over the earth. We can handle all the affairs of life without you. And so they fell into sin and came short of glorifying God as the chief end of their existence. The Bible also describes individuals who live like this as being dead while they're yet alive. Speaking of widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6, who instead of calling upon God to meet their needs after their husbands die while they live in riotous pleasure, the apostle states of those individuals, but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. A person who lives each day of their life as if there were no God, as if that there was no need to thank God for his existence, the Bible describes that that person has life, physical life, but they have no real understanding of the purpose why God put them here in this life. They are dead while they are yet alive. And a person who's dead has no direction. They have no course. They don't know where they come from. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they are headed. And this is the essence of a person having died by making their own lives the chief end of their existence. You go out and ask the average American today, what do you want out of life? And they will quickly reply, I want happiness. I want happiness. That's the chief reason why I'm alive, is what the polls will tell you. I want to be happy. And yet the Bible declares that God did not create man as the primary reason of him just finding happiness in himself. He created him as a token to give glory unto his own workmanship. And when a man refuses to do that, he'll miss his calling in life. And he will never find the inner happiness which can only be found in glorifying his God. Then these individuals which live for themselves and not for the glory of God, they major on minor purposes. Romans 1 verse 25 states, "...who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever." Most of men's problems in their relationship with God come not from blatant atheism, but they come from misplaced emphasis. Notice here that the fault which is found with the human race of idolaters is that they change the truth of God into a lie 
and worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Now, if we have already seen, there are creatures in this world which God has given for us to use and to serve them and to govern over them. But when we make the material things of this life, the things for which that we are alive, and we leave the Creator out, then we become an idolater. And we say that the creation is more important than the Creator himself. And thus we become guilty of idolatry. That can happen in any area. God can give you two or three children to use and to raise and to nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they can be precious things, and yet you can turn them into idols. You can make your own offspring idols and worship and serve them and bring upon yourself the displeasure of God. This is what happened to Adam. Anything in the creation can either be used to give glory unto God or it can be used to glorify one's own self-interest. And in doing so, why then it becomes under the wrath of God. So individuals then reveal the very essence of sin. They begin to serve the creation more than the Creator Himself. And then the Bible also describes these people that they have their reward in this life. Quite frequently, I come across individuals which are Christians, and they make statements like this. They watch so-and-so who lives a life without Christianity, and they say, I just don't know how a person can get along without serving the Lord. Now, that's understandable for a person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something. People are getting along just fine without the Lord. If you don't believe it, just go and ask them. Just go and ask them. The masses of people today couldn't care beans about whether that there is a God or whether that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and they're getting along just fine. And they'll tell you, just keep your religion to yourself and don't bother me with it. Well, then how do these people get along in life? If, Pastor, you've said that God created a person that can glorify him in return and in return find happiness... In God, then how can a person get through this life without internal happiness and peace? Because these individuals have replaced the knowledge of God with something else in the material realm. If you would, go to Psalm chapter 17, verse 14, for just a moment. David here makes a prayer, and he prays to be delivered from wicked individuals. And this is not necessarily murderers and thieves, but just from people whom he describes here in this verse. Listen carefully. He prays in verse 14, from men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life. A person can go through this life somewhat content if he has enough accumulations which will satisfy his own heart. And he has his hope here in this life. He's not interested in any life to come. And you start talking with him about the life hereafter. And he says, don't bother me with that religious stuff. I've got my life here. I'm going to get all the gusto out of life I can. You know you only go around once. So you better get it all while you're still here. And so his portion for living is found in this life. 
This is also true of religious people. I did not say necessarily Christian people. I said religious people. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, our Lord described that a person could be religious and still not be in a right relationship with God. They could use religious things for wrong reasons. Just as non-Christians can use the things of this life for wrong reasons, people who can become religious can use religious ceremonies and activities for the wrong reasons. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, Jesus said, When you pray, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now here are some individuals which would start up to the temple on the Sabbath day to pray. But they are so holy they couldn't even make it to the temple. They had to stop on the street corner to pray and let everybody know that they were on their way to church. And they'd stop there and they'd pray a long prayer. And they no more had as the object of that prayer the glory of God than anything. What they were wanting was that men would see them and stop and say, My, isn't that a devout person? Has to pray right here on the corner. Now here, prayer God has ordained is a proper thing. But people can misuse prayer and turn it into a hypocritical thing. And what happens then is that Jesus said they wanted the applause of men. People stop and they look at them and they say, boy, oh, brother so-and-so, he's really a religious person. They got exactly what they wanted. They did not pray in order to please God. They prayed in order to gain a reputation with their fellow man. And so they misused a good thing. Just like a non-Christian can misuse his home, his family, his job, his world, anything that he may have, he may use them for his own selfish gain. So a religious person can use religious activities and ceremonies for their own selfish end. And that will be discerned on the final day when God judges the heart as to whether or not that when we've come to church today, We've come to give glory unto God. Or whether we've come just to worship the preacher. Or whether we've come to worship the church. Or whether we've come to worship any other thing. Whether we've come just to be with each other. You know, it's important to have Christian friends. Is it not? But you know, you can even make Christian fellowship an idol. If all you make of your church relationship is just to come to be with friends, you have fallen short of coming to worship God. I hope you've come here today not to pay homage to me, to this church, to your fellow man. But the chief end of why you've come through those doors is to worship your God. And if you've come for that reason, you can go home and know that your God's smile is upon your face. You haven't come to make a show. You haven't come to put on a spiel. But you've come to assemble to worship God. Regardless of who you are. Regardless of your color. Regardless of your race. Regardless of your religious beliefs. If you have come into this service today... To worship God and acknowledge Him. He has created you. He is keeping you alive. To Him you owe your breath and everything that you have unto Him. 
then you've come to worship God then today. And anyone who has come for other reasons than that will go away having come short of the glory of God. Now, you may go away and your fellow man would say, boy, it's sure good to see brother so-and-so in church today. And he may be right. I hope that we're all glad to see our brothers and sisters assembling in the name of God today. But if you've come to gain a reputation so that you can go out this week and your fellow man can look at you and say, oh, yes, they were in church Sunday. And that's the only reason why you've come. My friend, that will turn against you as an idle act in the final day of judgment. Because the chief end is to come to glorify God. And the secondary end is to enjoy our God. I wish I could dwell there a little bit longer. I think I'll just take a second. But remember this. Why do you go to church? Why do you go? Be careful of saying as so many people do. do, Well, I go to church to get something out of it. Then they leave. Oh, I didn't get anything out of that. You're not, your chief reason for coming is not to get. Your chief reason for coming is to give worship unto God. And when you come to give worship unto God, I don't care if you heard the poorest preacher in the land. I don't care if the choir sang off, off key. I don't care if the instruments were out of tune. I don't care if no one shook your hand. If no one even knew you were there. If you came to worship you go away with a sense of having been in the presence of God. But if you came to have people take on over you, and you came to criticize the sermon, you came to criticize the choir, you came to criticize the instruments, you came to criticize the way the church was decorated, my friend, when you leave, you'll get what you came out after, because here's an imperfect preacher. Here's an imperfect instrument. Here's imperfect choir members. Here's an imperfect auditorium. You can find what you're after. And the longer you get around people, the more imperfections you shall find. But let us go to church for the primary chief end of worshiping God. And if we've come to give unto Him, then we shall be able to leave having received something from Him irregardless of the imperfections of the means that were used to do so. Now, quickly, what do we mean by God's glory? What do we mean by God's glory? God's glory is all that God is in himself. In Acts chapter 7, verse 2, he's called the God of all glory. God's glory is such an essential part of his being that he cannot be God without it. If you take an earthly king and you strip him of his crown and remove his royal garments from him, he still remains a man. But God cannot have his glory removed and still remain God. If God's glory is removed from him, he becomes an idol. If you take the President of the United States and you strip him of his office, he still can... Reside, he's a human being, but you can't strip God of his glory and he still be God. God is inherently glorious. In Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 11, it is that glory which God is most jealous of and will refuse to part with. He says there, quote, I will not give my glory unto another. The glory is given unto the person who's worthy of it. 
When a person takes a baseball bat and they swing that bat and they hit a home run, as they're circling the bases, the glory is going to the person who's hit the ball, not to the bat that's lying there on the ground. And we are all creatures come forth from the hand of God. We're the bats. But when we try to take some honor and give it to the bat and take it away from God, God says, I will not part with that because if it's taken away from me, I cease to be God. So we are called upon to give God the glory which is due unto his name. Then the glory of God is not only that which God has inherently within himself, but it's that glory which we attribute to him. First Chronicles 16:29 again, give unto the Lord the glory that's due unto his name. First Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20, for you bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If a person does a worthy act, they are to be honored for it. And glory is to be given unto that person or honor, credit so to speak. We say, will you take credit for this? God takes credit for all of his creation. And we as his creatures are in turn to give him that credit. Acknowledge that everything which we have and ever hope to have come God. So what does the glorifying of God consist of? And I quickly give it in four areas. First, in appreciation of God. How can we know we're glorifying God? Well, do you appreciate God? Can you say with the hymn writer, who am I that a king should bleed and die for? Who am I, a man, that God should give me such an exalted place in life? And the next time that you begin to think that you're really someone and that you forget God, then when you're driving down the road and you see that little toad hopping out and across the road in front of you, you remember that could have been you. That could have been you. And there was nothing meritorious in you which made you any different than God could have made you a toad. And had you squashed by the wheel of an automobile, God made you what you are. He made you as unique as a snowflake. Even our fingerprints are different. You are a unique creature in the world of human beings. Can you then say with the songwriter, well, who am I? Who am I that God should do this for me? We ought to be God admirers. And if we're glorifying God, we should be expressing appreciation to God. Secondly, we can glorify God by giving him adoration in worship. Psalm 29, verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship God and give him the glory. We can adore God in worship. Thirdly, by having affection for God, we can glorify him. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is a way in which that we can glorify God. There are two types of love. One is described as a self-love, and that is when we love one another because of what another person can give to us. And it's relatively easy to love someone in that capacity. A wicked man can love God because God has given him a good harvest or a new home. But that doesn't mean he loves God. It means he loves God's blessings rather than God. The prodigal son loved his father's blessings, but he didn't love his father's house. 
And so he wanted what he said belonged to him, but he didn't want to live under the government of his father's house. Many people will give lip service and say they love God, but really what they're after is only his blessings. Satan came to Job or to God one day and he said, that's all the reason that Job is serving you. He really doesn't love you. He's a hypocrite. You take away all your blessings and he'll curse you. And so God allowed all of those things to occur to Job's life to show to Satan that Job truly loved God and that Job loved God, not just God's blessings. Do you? Do you? I see many of you, including myself, are facing that old ravage of time. You're getting older. We're all getting older. Most of us probably in the audience today have good health. You're not always going to have that. That's going to go from you. Some of you, if not already, your family has left you. I'm talking about your children have grown up and moved out of the home. You've lost the comfort of children in the home. Some of you have lost the comfort of companions in death and other reasons. As these things leave, does that cause you to change in your love to God? Suppose that something happened to you that happened to Job. Suppose news comes today that your companion has died, that your children have forsaken you, that your house has burned down, that your automobile has been destroyed. Suppose you lose all of these things. Would you still go on in love and serve God? Or would you suddenly determine, my, it wasn't God I was loving at all. It was just the blessings which God was giving to me. This is the acid test of whether that we're making God the chief end of all our existence. Then the fourth way we can glorify God is to live in subjection to him, ready to do his service as the angels in heaven do his service. How do you know if you love God or not? Are you obeying his will as expressed in his holy commandments? Or are you like the person that when they are told a commandment, they say, I don't want that one, and pick and choose. Say, I'll take this one, two of these, two of those, but I don't want these. Do you go through the Bible and use your mind as a screen in which that everything you find, that which pleases your own desire, you allow it to flow into you, but that which does not please you, you just screen those portions of the Scriptures out and say, that's not the will of God for me. The angels in heaven do not screen anything out. Whatever God tells them to do, they do. When the angel was told, go down there and tell that young virgin she's going to be a mother, that angel went, didn't he? What a glorious messenger he was to come and reveal unto Mary that she was about to bring forth the Christ child. But may I also remind you that there was another angel in the Old Testament that was sent as a messenger from God, and he was given the terrible task of having to take the lives of 185,000 Assyrians who were about to destroy a little group of people, and they all died in one night. What would you have done if you'd have been that angel? Would you say, well, I just pick the good things. I don't want anything to do with the bad things. 
I'll just do that. No, the angels in heaven look upon the face of their Father, and they are in so subjection to God that whatever God says, that makes it right. And they respond and do it. What about your own heart? Do you glorify God by being subject to his commandments? Now then, in conclusion, we make this brief application that if it is the chief end of our existence is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, and the secondary end is to rule over the material affairs of our life in whatever calling God has given us, then it is our duty to shun and escape from all those doctrines and practices that degrade and detract from the glory of God and magnify the creature and put him in his place. The 115th Psalm says that our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And any doctrine or any practice which would pull God down out of the heavens and put a limitation upon what is right for him to do and what's wrong for him to do is leading us right into idolatry. And, beloved, just as we should refrain from physical idolatry, we should also seek to escape any practices inside and outside of the churches of God, which would in any way cast a reflection upon the holy character of God and rob him of his glory. It is said of the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness that they tempted God and limited God. And how did they do that? Not that they got God in a noose somewhere and prevented him from doing what his omnipotent power is capable of doing, but they, in their own minds, said, can God furnish a table out here in the wilderness? He can't do it. He can't take care of us out here. And so they limited God in their own thinking, and in doing so, they became idolatrous. And that's why you, your pastor has labored here with you for some six and one-half years. And I have tried to the best of my ability that whenever and wherever any false practices were existing, whether they be local or in the church at large, that in any way detracted from the glory of God to, and exalted the creature in its place, to try to put man and that practice back in its place and have God's glory clear and shining through from the throne of God. And I failed in many, many ways, many, many areas in which that I have not even had the knowledge of seeing that certain things degraded and detracted from the glory of God. But, beloved, we cannot uphold any teaching which would say that God must get his ability to act from his creation. We cannot uphold any teaching which says that God cannot do such and such until something in his creation gives him the free will to do so. Beloved, there's only one being in the universe which has absolute free will, and that's God. For he has omnipotent power to do whatever he purposes to do. And nothing in his creation can rise up against him and say, What doest thou? Only God is God. Only he has omnipotent power. Only he has omniscient wisdom. And only he is pure to know how to use that power and how to use that wisdom. And our little 
finite minds must be careful that we do not make an idol out of God and strip God of the glory that's due unto his name and make him an idol. John would say, and I close with this passage of Scripture, My little children, keep yourself from idols. My little children, keep yourself from idols. Give unto the Lord the glory that is due unto his name. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray that we might see the priority of making the chief reason why that we live to be that of glorifying your name. And we pray that the effect from setting that priority might be such that we might be enabled to enjoy you. To sit in your presence, to study your word and not be bored. To be able to open the Bible and to be able to understand it and have a love for it and have a thrill that stirs our inner man when we are given insights into your ways and your dealings with us. And Father, we pray that we may never despise your word and call it light bread as your people of old did. We pray that whatever bits of holy manner that you might be pleased to bless us and give us with, that we shall not despise it and in turn ask for the leeks and the onions and the garlics of this life. Help us to put this life in perspective. Help us to see that we're on a journey into eternity where that we shall either glorify you eternally or that we shall bring eternal shame upon ourselves. Guide and direct us through our affairs of life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.